From the team that brings you CNA Newsroom, welcome to Editor's Desk. Hello, friends. I'm not your host of CNA's Editor's Desk, J.D. Flynn. J.D. is, as most of you probably know by now, feeling unwell. And so for this, the second week in a row, there won't be an ordinary episode of Editor's Desk. But J.D. didn't want you to suffer alone and not have at least something in your podcast feed this week. And so he asked me to at least spare a few moments to give you my thoughts on a few things. Now, naturally, what I would like to do is simply give you my ideas, and these are, I stress, the correct ideas on such important topics as watches, baseball, the Muppets, and possibly the top 10 Christmas films, in which Die Hard would certainly feature. However, I want JD to recover and not add high blood pressure to everything else he's battling at the moment, so I'm going to confine myself to hopefully drawing your attention to a few things we've covered at CNA in the last few days that merit your careful attention. Something that certainly is drawing a lot of feedback on our website at the moment is a recent document. I say recent, it was actually circulated in September, but recently reported by us anyway, um, of a document from the Doctrinal Committee of the U.S. Bishops' Conference on hymns at Mass. Now, what the Bishops' Conference has said here is that hymns that are sung at Mass should have appropriate theological content, and it identifies a number of hymns, it gives some examples, although the list isn't exhaustive, that have not great theology behind them. Now, we can all think of a few hymns we don't like, probably many of you more than me. I as some of you know, didn't spend most of my life in this country, and so many of the hymns that are common in U.S. parishes are somewhat foreign to me, and I've been discovering them in recent years. But nevertheless, it is important that we remember that lex orandi, lex credendi, the law by which we pray is the law which we will eventually come to believe. And so one of the things the bishop singled out in this letter is that hymns that, for example, continue to treat and refer to the Eucharist as bread and wine and a simple act of sharing are to be discouraged and we really shouldn't use them. That it's important that we bear in mind that when we're talking about, thinking about, participating in, and singing about the Eucharist, we treat it as exactly what it is, which is the body and blood of Christ. There are some hymns in here that I think a lot of people will welcome not hearing again, and some that maybe are old favorites for people, and, well, tough. You know, it's it's an important thing that we pay attention to the language used in the liturgy, and the hymns are not outside of the liturgy, they're part of it, that, you know, to sing is to pray twice. And so it's important that we treat these things with a certain amount of respect. But it's important to remember, when looking at this list, as I'm sure many of you will, that this is not... Um, this is not a votum by the Bishops' Conference Doctoral Committee on the quality of the music here. There are some hymns that perhaps you don't like, and maybe even I don't like, who aren't on this list because they have perfectly correct theology. So we're not talking about aesthetics here. We're talking about theological content. But what the bishop said is, uh, and I'm going to quote a little bit from this advisory note of theirs, that the Christian tradition, both Eastern and Western, has from antiquity been acutely aware that hymns and other songs are among the most significant forces in shaping or misshaping the religious and theological sensibility of the faithful. 
It is all the more important then that hymnodies selected for the liturgical life of the church successfully draw out the beauty of the Christian mysteries themselves. This cannot be done if language is used that is out of keeping with the sensibility created by scriptural texts or universal liturgical usage. Now, this document was distributed to the bishops this month, and they were encouraged to share it with their diocesan worship offices, with pastors and parishes, parish musicians, and we'll see how that shakes out. Hymns, we should point out, don't need to be precise doctrinal theological formula. There's, there's license for poetry here, but they shouldn't go against what the church teaches, and they certainly shouldn't cultivate you know, a bad understanding. Um, Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is the... Vatican II's Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy said that the texts intended to be sung must always be in conformity with Catholic doctrine. Indeed, they should be drawn chiefly from Holy Scripture and from liturgical sources. So, you know, if you're looking for a good way of singing and praying, this is just one man's opinion, but I'd recommend the Psalms. We have them. They're wonderful. These are the immemorial words of the church and indeed the words which God himself has given us to praise him. So this is the sort of stuff we can be drawing on. Anyway, turning our attention to a few other things, there was also this week news that um, a COVID restriction placed by a bishop has been upheld by the Vatican's Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments. Now, this is a little bit of a third rail topic and not one that I would normally encourage us to discuss on Editor's Desk, but I'm not having a discussion here. It's just me talking to you, dear listener. So, safe in the knowledge that I don't have to put up with anyone else's opinion and I can simply treat this matter in the way that I see fit, I'm going to tell you a little bit about a decision that was reached regarding Bishop Richard Sticka of the Diocese of Knoxville, who placed earlier this year a restriction on the public celebration of Mass and specifically on the distribution of communion, owing to the coronavirus pandemic. Bishop Sticka has basically suppressed the reception of communion on the tongue, which is ordinarily, and I stress here ordinarily, a right of the faithful that the church allows us to receive, if we are properly disposed for the reception of communion, um, to receive on either the tongue or in the hand. Both of these are equally licit. Many people have strong personal preferences and good spiritual or even pastoral reasons for the preference that they have. However, this doesn't make one more licit than the other. Now, ordinarily, as I said, the, there is a right to receive on the tongue if you would like that this is something established by the church. However, we are not in an ordinary period of time, and this is something that the congregation noted in their letter rejecting recourse against Bishop Sticka's guideline rule norm, we can say canonically. Now, what the letter actually says is that this rule in, um, passed by Bishop Sticka had been appealed to them. Now, I want to stress, we are dealing with a canonical process here, that this is how the system works in canon law, that a bishop places an act of governance, in this case, an act of administration, an act of administrative power, what we would call executive authority. Now, this has been appealed by someone, we don't know the in the release of this response letter, they edited out the name of the petitioner. But how this proceeds in canon law is this. If your bishop does something um, within the scope of the law that you don't like, 
you are, of course, as a good Catholic, we are all bound to show a certain amount of filial obedience to the right exercise of authority by the bishop, that this is part of being a Catholic, that we respect Episcopal authority. But this doesn't mean that you never have um, any avenue of appeal. And in fact, there is a well-established canonical mechanism for appeal in these cases, and that's what was followed here. So the first thing you do, if you're displeased with an act of your bishop, is you ask him to reconsider. Because, of course, we all want to be reasonable here. So you would write to your bishop and say, Dear Bishop, I noticed that you issued a letter or a decree or whatever it may be um, deciding X. I'm not wild about this idea, and you give your reasons, and you ask him to reconsider. If he answers yes, then hooray, you've, you know, you've got what you wanted. If he says no, or even if he doesn't respond for a certain period of time, and you can then infer the no from silence according to the law, you can then appeal it to Rome depending on the appropriate department. Ordinarily, you would appeal an act of a diocesan bishop to the Congregation for Clergy, but in this case, it went to the Congregation for Divine Worship. So what the Congregation found in this case was that um, in regard to this petition, making recourse against the decision of Bishop Sticka to suspend reception of Holy Communion on the tongue at public masses throughout the Diocese of Knoxville for the duration of the public health emergency caused by the coronavirus pandemic as has already been enunciated in the circular letter of Cardinal Robert Sarah of August 15th of this year, approved for publication by His Holiness Pope Francis, in times of difficulty, that is, wars or pandemics, bishops and episcopal conferences can give provisional norms which must be obeyed, even clearly as in this case to suspend for whatever time might be required reception of Holy Communion on the tongue at the public celebration of the Holy Mass. Something I want to stress here is there will be many people listening to this, I'm sure, who have their own preferences on how they like to receive Holy Communion, and many, I'm sure, will prefer to receive on the tongue. And many of those, I'm sure, will have very deep, um, deeply held, and very praiseworthy spiritual reasons for wishing to do so. And that's great. What we are talking about here is a canonical process. What we are talking about here, and we don't have the text of the original petition, but we can reasonably infer that this was a petition made against the bishop's decision in procinendo, as we say in canon law, that is, against his way of proceeding, that is, did he act according to the law, not in decinendo, that is to say, the actual decision itself, which is, did he have to decide the way he did, was he right to make the decision that he did, but merely was the decision that he made within his authority to do so. And what the congregation has said here is, yes, he does have the authority to do so. Now, there will be, I'm sure, Catholics in the Diocese of Knoxville, who will point out that other bishops in other dioceses in the United States have gone the other way with this, that they have concluded that there is no apparent evidence suggesting that communion on the tongue versus in the hand poses a, a greater or lesser risk to the spread of coronavirus uh, during these times. That may be true. I'm not a scientist. I'm certainly not an epidemiologist, and I have no interest in pretending to be one on this podcast or anywhere else. But what I would say is, what the congregation has done here is said, look, the bishop has the power to act in this case, and the bishop has chosen to act. Now, there can be respectful disagreement with the reasons he's given. There can be those who would wish that he decided another way, and that's perfectly right and normal, as long as those opinions are respectfully expressed. Respectfully expressed. But... When it comes to dealing with acts of the bishop, the bottom line is sometimes we don't get what we want. Sometimes the bishop decides a different way. But this doesn't absolve Catholics, even if they have good reasons for wishing the bishop had decided a different way, to then turn around and say, well, we don't have to obey. So we are called to obedience. 
This is the wonderful thing about being Catholic, is we have a society. We live in a society, the society of the church, and that society is governed by a hierarchy. It's governed by laws. And these are the ways in which we are bound, or part of the ways in which we are bound by communion, that we are bound in a communion of hierarchy with our bishop and through the bishop to the bishop of Rome and all those others in communion with him. So in a sense, to be in communion with your bishop when you disagree with him is an important part of being a Catholic. So there's that. I'm sure a lot of people are going to get angry about that, but, you know, what are you going to do? This is the news this week. Um, something else which was decided by Rome this week, which I thought was particularly interesting, was the Bishop of Charleston in South Carolina, um, this is Bishop Robert Guglielmoni, uh, received word from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith that an accusation, a historical accusation of sexual abuse against him has been dismissed. It has been dismissed as lacking any foundation. Um, this is very interesting. So, uh, as many of you know, the state, several states in this country, including amongst others, uh, New York and New Jersey, have opened, if you like, look-back windows, uh, suspensions of the statute of limitations on the bringing of civil suits in cases of sexual abuse. And during the lifting of this window, such an accusation was brought forward against um, Bishop Guglielmoni, who used to be a priest in the Diocese of Rockville Center before he was made a bishop. And this accusation dated back to the 1970s. We don't have a lot of the details, um, but it was an accusation of primary sexual abuse, that he was himself accused of having committed sexual abuse. Now, the bishop was never suspended from office. Uh, he, When this accusation was first made, he said, you know, he was very clear in asserting his innocence, and he said he was stepping back a little bit from public ministry, that he was going to have a lighter schedule, lighter public appearances, so as not to distract from the governance of the diocese and, you know, didn't want to become the center of negative attention for Catholics in the area, and that's all fine and good. Um, but the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith has effectively dismissed the accusation this week, that they said it was lacking any foundation. Now, what's interesting here is this. When an accusation of sexual abuse is made against anyone in the church, a bishop, a priest, any cleric, there is a clearly laid out process which is followed, which is the first thing is there is an initial determination, which is, is the does the accusation have a semblance of truth? Now, this is usually translated legally into the standard of not manifestly false or frivolous. That is, not clearly impossible, not on its face something that you can dismiss and say this could not have happened. It's not a question of reasonable doubt. It's not a question of more likely than not. Nothing like that. It is purely a, is this actually possible to have happened? And it seems here that the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith has said, no, it isn't. Now, one thing I would flag about this that I find interesting is the civil lawsuit in this particular case is still pending. And this is very interesting because there are more than one um, of these accusations that have been filed in the course of these look-back windows in several states, and some of them have involved bishops also. The Bishop of Brooklyn uh, has had a, a similar accusation made against him dating back also to the 1970s, and there has been um, you know, an investigation opened into that by the church, and we're still waiting for the results of that. But what's interesting about this one is that the Vatican has dismissed this accusation prior to any kind of civil procedure going forward. And this is, you know, it's not unheard of, but it's unusual for Rome to do so. Normally, the Vatican, particularly the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, likes the civil courts to take their course first and have a conclusion of that before a canonical process is fully opened. And instead, what's happened here is they've said, look, there isn't going to be any other canonical process, that this falls at the first hurdle. There's not enough here to even open a real full preliminary investigation, which would then lead to, if you like, a 
what we'd call an indictment, I guess, in civil law, which would then lead to a possible trial, that we haven't even made that initial bar here. So it's interesting because ordinarily, as I said, the Vatican likes to let the civil courts take their course first. And the reason for this is often so there isn't a confusion of evidence that people aren't, there aren't two parallel processes going on at the same time. And if, for example, a canonical process is proceeding and is proceeding under all sorts of terms of confidentiality, which can be necessary, particularly for the protection of victims and their identities and also the protection of witnesses, that you don't have the civil courts trying to subpoena the ecclesiastical authorities. And, you know, you run into all kinds of conflicts there about the sovereignty of the Vatican and sovereign immunity of their process and everything else. And so normally to sidestep those questions, they wait for the civil courts to take their course. And they haven't here. So it's interesting. This presumably speaks a great deal to the substance of the accusation, at least in the mind of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And it will be interesting to see if this marks a, a sort of new willingness on the part of the CDF to act summarily to dismiss accusations that they find to be manifestly false and frivolous, or if they're going to continue by and large with waiting for the civil courts to take their course. Certainly, if um, there, certainly, I think there will be other bishops in the United States looking at this and saying, well, they got a pretty swift answer, so I wonder if I can too. It'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. What else has happened this week that might be interesting? Um, oh, yeah. So President-elect Joe Biden, a Catholic, has named uh, some members of his prospective incoming cabinet, uh, amongst them Javier Becerra, the attorney general of California, uh, who he has suggested would he would like to serve as his secretary for the Department of Health and Human Services. Now... We've talked a little bit on the podcast in the past about HHS and the kind of work that goes on there and that this really is, in many ways, the epicenter of life issues in the church uh, with regards to the civil authority, that we're not just talking about abortion here, that we're talking about um, the freedom of doctors and nurses to practice medicine uh, in line with their conscience and their religious beliefs. We're talking about, for example, the HHS contraceptive mandate, which has landed the Little Sisters of the Poor in front of the Supreme Court twice. Um, we know it is uh, Joe Biden's stated intention to effectively put the sisters back in court uh, soon after he is inaugurated into office. And so what we have here is the appointment of an attorney general from California who has been one of the most I think we could say aggressive in his approaches to Catholics and Catholic institutions and organizations like hospitals, the Little Sisters of the Poor, and also uh, anti-abortion campaigners. So I think what we're looking at here is very much the possibility that we could see the so-called culture wars being stepped up from the Department of HHS. And this is something we've got to keep an eye on because we have a tendency uh, it, when viewing secular politics to look first and foremost at the guy in the White House and what he says. But really that the business of government in the executive branch is mostly carried out by people who work in offices like the Office of Civil Rights at the Department of HHS, whose names we don't necessarily know. We know the current incumbent, actually. His name is Roger Severino. But many people don't ever learn their names. Many of us don't even know what they do until they're doing it and, they're, and what they're doing impacts us. So this is something we have to keep an eye on. One last thing I'd like to bring to your attention is the situation in Hong Kong. We've written a lot at CNA about the situation of the church in China and also the situation of human rights in China generally. And the situation in Hong Kong is something that has really been um, getting more and more serious in the last six months or so. 
as many of you will know and remember, um, on July 1st, the mainland government effectively imposed a new national security law on Hong Kong, which goes against, in many ways, the basic law of Hong Kong. The basic law of Hong Kong is basically its constitutional charter that safeguards things like civil liberties, religious freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, things like that. Things that don't really exist, at least not in the same way on the mainland, but have existed in Hong Kong as, during its time as a, as a British overseas territory, and which were guaranteed by the Chinese government at the time of the handover that there would be one country, two systems. Well, this week, um, we reported an interview with Cardinal Zen, who was commenting on a lot of the things that have been going on in Hong Kong recently. There have been the arrest under the terms of this national security law of a number of pro-democracy protesters and journalists, including a number of Catholics, I'd add, uh, the most prominent of which is uh, probably Jimmy Lei, who is the founder of the newspaper Apple Daily in Hong Kong, um, which has not exactly been shy of critiquing the direction of travel and the government in Hong Kong. And uh, Jimmy Lei has been arrested before. He's been arrested for breach of the so-called national security law. He was bailed for the um, while those charges were pending. But he was rearrested on December 2nd and charged with uh, basically that his company, Next Digital Media, had violated the lease on one of its buildings. And he was arrested for this. And he's now currently in prison. He's been denied bail. And he will be sentenced... Uh, presumably following some sort of trial, uh, reasonably soon. We know that pro-democracy protesters like Agnes Chow have already been arrested under the terms of the national security law, sentenced to, um, in some cases, 10 months, some cases a little more than a year in the first instance, and there are other charges pending. So the, the outlook isn't great here. And what Cardinal Zen told us at CNA this week was that this was a campaign of political intimidation. He said that Jimmy Lay is obviously the and I'm quoting Cardinal Zen here, Jimmy Lay is obviously the one who runs the only newspaper which is still completely free. You know many other papers are bought by people on the side of the government, that is the Chinese government, and there are many who may still have some respectable reporters working on them, but at the right moment, the government can suppress anything. And there is a clear policy direction here, the suppression of freedom of expression. And Cardinal Zen went on to discuss with us how freedom of expression in Hong Kong is absolutely tied to freedom of religion, the freedom of the church to act, the freedom of the church to be itself. And we have seen a lot of in the most recent months since the passage of this national security law on um, Catholic institutions in Hong Kong being effectively reined in, reined in in this case by the chancery of the Diocese of Hong Kong. But, you know, we, we can reasonably assume uh, they weren't doing this just because they felt like it, that there has been pressure, either hard or soft, from the government to do so. So we've seen the apostolic administrator of the Diocese of Hong Kong write to all the priests warning them about political content and their homilies and urging them to not address contentious social issues but to reassure the faithful. Um, we've seen Catholic schools warned to make sure that they're instilling proper patriotic values and respect for Chinese national symbols like the national anthem and the flag in Catholic schools. And None of this really can be easily separated out from the political situation in Hong Kong because, and this is something else that Cardinal Zen spoke to us about, um, the role of the Catholic Church in Hong Kong over the past several decades has not so much been one of being overtly political, but that to be formed with a Catholic mind, a Catholic understanding of human dignity, the necessity of freedom in society to choose and do the good and the right, as Cardinal Zen 
said, um, is very much part and parcel of, for example, a Catholic education and that it's not a coincidence that many of the people who have been at the front line of these pro-democracy demonstrations have been Catholics or have gone to Catholic schools, that this is part of the intellectual formation um, to resist, for example, the unthinking adherence to the diktats of a communist government. So this is something that's definitely worth keeping an eye on and we certainly will be. Now, I would like here to ask you all a favor, which is this. Um, I have been trying to give you at least something to cloud up your feed for the last few minutes because I know many of you will be missing editor's desk these last two weeks, and I certainly have been. I miss my conversations with JD, and he's not here. So I would ask you guys, for the balance of what would normally be the hour you spend listening to this podcast, if you could spend the balance of that hour praying, or at least some part of it, praying for the people who are sick right now, because there are a lot of them. There are a lot of people who um, are spending this Advent really thinking about their own mortality, thinking about death, which is, of course, what the first two weeks of Advent are meant to be about, reflecting on the four last things, beginning with our own death and judgment. So I'd ask you to offer the prayers that you can and that you can spare for those people who are really spending this Advent under the cloud of sickness, because it is a real thing. That having been said, I sincerely hope that you'll be hearing from us next week as normal. Um, we will see, but that's certainly our intention and our hope. So, CNNA's Editor's Desk, which this was sort of an installment of, is a production of the Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. I'm not your host and CNA's Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. I am, in fact... CNA's DC editor, Ed Condon, and I hope this has been at least some small consolation for you, and hopefully we will see you again next week. Be excellent to one another, fellows. <laughs>